0: History Lecture 108, Rabbi Blyworth. Um, we were talking about the British Mandate Palestine. And um, a number of insights are going to come out today that are subtle and important, I claim, to understand uh, the world that we're living in today. It's one of these, you know, in, in, in certain things happened during these, the, these years between the wars that... Um, would shape a lot of what we see right now in the Jewish people. I mean, a continued development of the conflict between the Torah world and the, all the forces from the outside are, that are trying to uh, deconstruct it. So, uh, and plus there are a lot of other phenomena as well that figure into this time and certainly have a um, uh, you know, will contribute to the unfolding events of the day. And, uh, for example, um, the British didn't initially take over. Uh, It was a mandated Palestine and it took a few years for them to really determine the direction that uh, they they would take in Palestine, how to to rule over these not entirely hospitable local populations, uh, small but growing local populations. So the first British high commissioner, it (coughs) it took them three years after the victory to appoint him. His name was Herbert Samuel, and he was a Jew. Yeah, Um, he was, some would say, a practicing Jew, orthoprax on some level. He was, I don't know, only because Baruch can judge us individually in terms of knowing uh, what his level of observance was. He was, though, an example, and really one of the examples of a Jew who by, like so many other Jews in history, sometimes referred to as court Jews, who by merit of their prestige and position in in non-Jewish society, remember now, he's now the official governor by by virtue of the British Empire in British Mandate Palestine, um, because he's in this difficult um, position where he's constantly being accused or or at least uh, suspected of dual loyalties, are you Jewish? Are you a Jewish uh, British man? Are you a British Jew? You know, where, where, where do you finally place your, um, your, your uh, loyalties? Uh, he would be like many of the Jews in these positions, and we're going to meet more of them, uh, who would bend over backwards not to be too Jewish, to make uh, decisions that were always favorable to the local authority and often uh, disastrous to the Jews. And he's, in my mind at least, really one of the figures who, I think, inadvertently, if you were to ask him, I mean, he'd probably be appalled to go down in history with his legacy. And I'm sure the man meant well, and, but you're in a, a double bind in this position. And uh, he did particularly, we'll talk about a couple of, two, two, two major things um, that were hard, that remain very hard to uh, justify. He, um, Among other things, y- there's this notion of even handedness. It comes up a lot if you want to understand but the, the, the so-called Arab-Israeli conflict, sometimes referred to as the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, uh, all with political overtones. Depending on even what you refer to it, uh, you know, Palestinian, if you even acknowledge this a sort of people, uh, somehow separate from the Arab people who also are out to destroy Israel. The uh, you know, all, all of these, all of these are, are, are have, have overtones. Um, you know that how do you refer to the area directly north and south of where we're sitting right now in Eshelaim? Well, if you were right-wing, hypothetically, you would call it, you know, Yehuda v'shemron, Judea and Samaria, uh, which are biblical lands, and thereby implying that they're, you know, they're uh, God-given and historically mandated to apply Israel. If you were to call it the West Bank, that's a politically loaded term that's very, associated, very much associated with the left-wing. Because the West Bank of what? It's the West Bank of the Jordan River, meaning we're oriented around the Jordan River, implying the East Bank and the West Bank, and that really the whole territory belongs to Jordan as it was before the Six Day Bank. Wars. Occupied West Bank, exactly. So all of these, depending on how you, what your terminology are, you, you already sort of um, betray your own biases. So um, here, t- uh, they, they often talk about, the news will talk about being even-handed. Uh, the New York Times is often accused by both, both sides of showing favoritism towards one or the other, so they have bend over backwards to be even-handed, but you realize even-handed reporting is sometimes the least fair of all kinds of reporting, as, for example, where there are terrorist attacks and they'll report even-handedly um, three Jews murdered, one Arab murdered. Only when you read the fine print does it, does it emerge that the Arab who was murdered was the terrorist attacker who had killed those three Jews and was, was killed so they wouldn't kill more? But you wouldn't get that in the headline. That was what they call an even-handed headline, so as not to show any bias towards the Jews, except it's, it's obviously it's, it's, a, it's a self-parody, and it would be funny if it weren't so tragic. Um, so again, here you have Herbert Samuel, the first British high commissioner, uh, showing his even-handedness, Chassid Shalom, he would ever betray a bias towards his own people. And so he does two things. You going to say something before? You want to interject here? Not that important. I was reading the book, Lone Survivor, by Navy Seal. He slams liberals at every chance he gets. Uh This this is one of the. Um, I don't think it's only a fault of liberalism. I mean, you certainly find it among liberal liberal sets in different societies but it's not just liberalism it's a general it's the it's the democratic spirit to try to break down everybody and to bring this um parity parity equality between the different sides and like for example like a responsible news journalist We'll try to show all different sides, but sometimes that in itself, I mean, you can't be a journalist, you can't be a historian, you can't be a, a, a student of world affairs without having some kind of bias in them creeping through. And sometimes the bias is well deserved. Like, for example, it wasn't even handed in the Holocaust. The Nazis murdered the Jews. and even handed reporter would say, yes, but you know what the Jews did to, uh, to, to stimulate the anger of the nations against them, kind of a thing. Okay, so and that's I'm claiming is it's a broader issue in the world, not just uh, a fault of the liberal left, but you certainly do find it on the liberal left. In any case, Herbert Samuel uh, did a number of things, but the two most infamous was to um, he would uh, the Jews now were arriving in Palestine in increasing numbers. Um, We've already seen the first Aliyah and the second Aliyah. The third Aliyah immediately follows. The war, World War One, the third Aliyah is seen. stretch the third Aliyah is seen as a um, even more radically secular than the first, than the second Aliyah, if such a thing was imaginable. Um, it included a new movement that called itself Hashomer Hatzair, the Young Guard, Hashomer Hatsair, which was rapidly anti-Tyra. And they were they, there's a whole subset in the kibbutz movement called Hashomer Hatzair Kibbutzim, their own idealistic, socialist uh, philosophy and and ambitions. Um, but they were they were they were um, hostile to any any voice of tradition. They came now um, later. We would see in the late twenties the fourth Aliyah, which was mostly um, Polish. Um, the fifth Aliyah, which was much, which was in the early 30s, which was uh, dominated by Germans and other Central Europeans uh, and on. But um, the issue of aliyah and immigration in general had become a political issue because now that there is an increasing tension between the different local factions of Arabs and Jews, of course, how many they're gonna be becomes all important towards this struggle. And um, you know, trying to limit immigration from both sides would become an imperative because uh, in a democratic world, in a democratic system, so they got the numbers, you won't have a state. You won't be able to, and that's part of the self-contradiction of a democratic Jewish state that also offers citizenship to Arab minorities. Uh, it, at one point, the demographics could, and at least are on track to, uh, set everything off. The Jewish state, theoretically, could easily become an Arab state if the demographics shift, um, as we see also, um, there is an imperative among locals to have lots of babies. They tend to do a good, better job of that than the Jews at large. The largely secular Jewish population in the state of Israel is very Western in that way, and having one point seven children. I always wanted to meet that that point seven child, uh, but they, you know they, they, they keep the population young and you know limited and convenient, which is a disaster for demographics. Of course, we in the firm world try to offset that, but uh, but you can see that the. It's a problem. So Herbert Samuel puts a limit on Jewish immigration. It'll get worse. Samuel Samuel is, is one of the earlier uh, uh, forces that puts a limit on Jewish immigration. But uh, you have to realize, uh, and effectively under Samuel, for every um, one Jew who arrives, two Arabs were allowed to come in. And Arabs were also flocking to Palestine because under the British mandate, it was a more attractive place to live than most of their alternatives. Um, So that's offsetting the population and will have long-term negative ramifications for the Jewish Yishuv, for the Jewish settlement in Israel. That's the first infamous thing that he did. Well, I mean, especially the... I was thinking about the demographics so uh, t- t- today is a big day for that, uh, with the election. Absolutely, that, right. Who uh, the, 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 the liberals, I <coughs> just, just read an article, that they're uh, taking buses from the West Bank of... Uh, they're importing Arabs to have the Arabs vote. That's right. So, I mean, right, even right. today, A lot, demograph, excuse me, The de- de- democracy is often in the numbers, the raw democ- demographic figures, that's right. It's one of the reasons why Torah does not endorse a demogra- democratic system of governance. We like an autocracy where the Melech is a tzaddik and only subservient to Kanish Baruch Hu. It doesn't have to a- answer to the, ignoramus, the ignorant masses out there. that only not again? The uh, king was only... Right, it's true. We had, a, we had a mixed record with this then, but in Bayesh Lishi, it'll be all good. Right, but even then, that's exactly why they had it. Democracy because of those oh, I don't think democracy is a result of that. Democracy is a result of a number of other things. Independent of Jewish people, democracy was born in the Greek islands for all kinds of complicated reasons and spread to the world. But uh, that's a different discussion. The second thing, the second thing um, was that early on in his in his uh, tenure, um, Herbert Samuel appointed a new what was called Grand Mufti. It was a new position. Um, who was in charge of Arab affairs under the British mandate. And he appointed a figure that you can't imagine why a Jew would ever consider this man a candidate. His name was Haj Amin al-Husseini, part of the very famous al-Husseini clan, uh, which the many, many uh, descendants and cousins uh, all around in Jordan and Palestine today, uh, Palestinians, uh, right? And um, he was then and remained through his career overtly anti-Semitic, a sworn enemy of Kuala Yisrael, who is, this is, I'm introducing him here and we're going to meet him again. Um, well, I'll give you this uh, preview. He's the one in the pictures with Adolf Hitler making an alliance, hoping that the Nazis will extend their campaign to Palestine and put up some concentration camps here. That's Haj Amin al-Husseini, who would never have gotten power had it not been for Sir Herbert Samuel. Go figure, history certainly takes some ironic twists. Samuel is not the last core Jew who would be really, uh, on, uh, as a legacy, a, a, a disaster for, for the Jewish people. Um, I'll cite a few more modern examples. We've seen some others in history. Um, in, the, uh, in 1938, um, FDR, Franklin, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, the President of the United States, had among his, uh, his administra- on his administration a council member by the name of Samuel Rosenman, guess which religion he subscribed to. Uh, not very strongly though, but Jew by birth, who, um, who actually was one of the opponents of Jewish immigration to the United States of America. It was, uh, the discussion came up immediately after Kristallnacht, the night of the crystal, where uh, many people realized for the first time that the Nazis meant business. And um, he said, no, no, we can't take too many Jews into America. Uh, Rosenman said, and then more infamously and very recently, and this was just published, and I've mentioned this all the time, in 1973, I mentioned this comes up a lot in conversation, that in 1973, captured on tape, the Secretary of State of America, Henry Kissinger, intermarried, but from German stock, uh, from Washington Heights originally, Um, Henry Kissinger would tell President Nixon that, quote, if they put Jews into gas chambers in the Soviet Union, These are the days of the refuseniks and the the Iron Curtain that won't let the Jewish people out of the Soviet Union. So Kissinger said if they put them in gas chambers in the Soviet Union, it is not an American concern. As a way of proving his loyalty to the Americans, don't think, even though he was the token Jew, uh, don't think I have any allegiances to my uh, my people. Um, The fact that we had some wonderful Jews in similar positions in our past, of course, we'll come, the people that come to mind: Yosef Etzadi in Egypt, Mordechai Esther. Uh, more recently, the uh, Shmuel Anugid in in um, in uh, in Granada, and uh, and later the Abarbinel. They would be the exception that did not prove the rule. Most of the time, Jews in power is a disaster, or means a disaster for Klal Yisrael. Um, we've mentioned before: Muslims historically were not. As anti Semitic as the Christians. They certainly weren't anti Semitic in the classic sense of the term, Um, but the virus of Western anti Semitism would spread and start to uh, infect the the Muslim world as well. Um, and, And what's scarier is the secular version, which has been around now for over a century. Uh, the one that doesn't have the natural moral limitations of the church anti-Semitism, where, in, with, within which genocide was unthinkable, now a secular anti-Semitism has arisen in the world that genocide, within which genocide is now a possibility, um, that, that, that comes to the Muslim world as well. They start to accept increasingly that the, Jewish, the Jews, as everybody said, were people who were parasitic, greedy, corrupt, buying wholesale the arguments the, the the caricature the stereotype um they rationalized uh that listen listen we didn't make this up we're just accepting the common wisdom and so when they start to go on the offensive in palestine most of them wouldn't have had the, i mean at the time most of them were not necessarily the intellectual said that they had to justify their actions. It was more of a mob who just went on, went on the attack when they, were, when they were afraid of the new. The Jews represented everything Western and everything new and it, it, it terrified the Arabs locally. But their leaders would often call upon these arguments that listen, the Jews are the parasites of the world. We certainly don't want them in the Middle East. We're just acting in the same way that all of humanity has acted for all, of, for all the generations. Uh, by attacking them and trying to destroy their numbers, and Chas from the Arab perspective, give them a state, give them the nationalism that they're that they're working for. Um, that that was that was their rationalization. Um, of course, the Muslims then and increasingly would underestimate the Jews. Um, they accepted the stereotypes that the Jews wouldn't be able to make it they didn't realize that part of the package of being part of the, the Jewish people was uh, a certain, a certain verve, tenacity, a set of skills and uh, uh, that, that the Jews did possess and would be able to pull the thing over uh, against the Arab expectations. So now, um, there have been a number, all the way back to the first large aliyah, the first aliyah in the 1880s, there have been a number of attacks on... Um, on the Jewish Yishuv. Uh, let's say some of the iconic attacks took place around the time of World War One. There was one up far in the north, what they call the Etzbah Galil, the finger of the Galilee, in Tel Chai. Does that ring a bell with anybody? The name Yosef Trumpledor mean anything to anybody? Yeah, yeah, Trumpledor. Trumpledor was, is an iconic Zionist hero who... Um, who was one-armed, a whole story about Trumpledor that I'm not gonna tell because he's really their hero. He's not a Torah hero per se, not a bad guy per se, but just nothing of interest for, from a Torah perspective. Um, he was one of the Jews who tried to fight for, for a state, and he, together with several other members of this, of this tiny struggling settlement in the far north, uh, would be attacked one day, and um, as he lay dying, uh, he said to have said uh, one of the famous statements of the early Jews, "Tov lamut ba'ardart It's good to die in behalf of our land, which became, of course, a, ca- a siren call, uh, a call to arms for the Jews. Um, but uh, <clears throat> there have been attacks, but they were isolated and specific. A full-scale riots now would start to break out, and the first, infamously was not far from here, down in, and I pointed it out in one of our tiulim earlier this year, in a place that they have a mistaken tradition that they call Nebi Musa, the Prophet Moses, Nebi Musa, um, which is down on this side of the Jordan River, that's their first mistake, because we know Moshe Rabbeinu is on the other side, Ma'ever trans Transjordan, in a place that n- is not known till today, um, the almost certain history of the place was that originally they used to go up there and they hold our prophets to be their prophets too. And they used to go looking into Harnavo from a high point just above Nachal Og, a great hike that we sometimes do. I don't think we've done it this year. Uh, Nahal Og. Anyway, um, they would go and they'd stare from that point across into, uh, into what's today Jordan and look at Harnavo way back in the days of the Mamluks and Biber's, the Mamluk made them up Little building so that they wouldn't be exposed to the heat as they as they congregated there. And that building, at some point in his and later history, stopped being just an observ- observatory base, but became the actual grave of Moshe itself. Go figure. A lot of places, uh, a lot of a lot of traditions evolve like that, erroneously. And um, we have we have probably similar uh, errors that we make based on based on the um, uh, mistaken traditions. In any case, in 1920, the um, the Moayden called called the Arabs for their annual gathering. There's a whole story of why they all came there. It was to it was the Jews had their Pesach, the Christians had their Easter. It was the same time of year, and the Muslims had their event over on Musa. And all of these tensions that I just described, all of this fear of the new, of the Jewish people, of the incursion of this Western, uh, they couldn't even quite make sense of it, but they they felt threatened. He was able to. Um, manipulate, capitalize on, and and he effectively gave a rebel rousing speech to the effect of "kill the Jews," and they went on a march from Nebi Musa. They rampaged back into Jerusalem to Yerushalayim Kodish, and for days um, that were mostly um, not monitored by the British, the officers just stood by and watched. The Arabs rioted, um, murdering. Uh, taking, burning a shul down, taking a safer tyra and, and, and destroying it. Um, and, um, the numbers were small, but it was the largest outbreak of riots till till that point. So it's a, it's a significant date. The next year they would follow with a, with a separate series of riots. Um, And if you had to, you could potentially, even though yesterday we had a whole discussion of assigning dates to to wars and such is arbitrary and not always so meaningful. But if you had to say, when did the Arab Jewish conflict begin, you could reasonably point to 1920 and 1921 with these outbreaks and these riots. As examples, note at this point I'm going to give. Very soon I'm going to be going into a a history of Jewish self-defense. I'm talking about uh, there is at this point in 1920, 1921 an underground nascent Jewish military guard, um, but it was not developed and it was not effective in any in any um, broad sense. uh, And we'll we'll see the development of that soon enough. But it was inadequate and. the Jews will increasingly feel threatened in this land, and there's, not, and there's increasing numbers of Jews. What, what is going to happen in the future? <clears throat> Something has to be done, and uh, notice these attacks were happening. These are, these are defenseless Jews who don't do anything, per se, to start the attacks. They're just there. Today, when there are attacks, usually the, the spin that you hear in the news is, well... The Jews have it coming to them because, uh, because of the occupation. You've heard such things? Right? Um, <coughs> Mrs. Blair, <coughs> the wife of the former Prime Minister of England, uh, once said, and she could do this in Britain, Britain is not a great friend to the Jews, to put it mildly, um, she, she said that um, she could understand the suicide bomber. She understood what, what a person like that could, could, could be moved to such desperation after all the Jews have conquered and, and, and occupied their land and left them without any hope. Well, Mrs. Blair and all the rest of you out there, the Arabs have been attacking Jews way before there was an occupation. In fact, when we were just a tiny, pitiful, defenseless um, group of people living in the land, the Arabs were attacking us just as savagely. And uh, really, almost no difference in that attack versus the attack that just happened there, right? <clears throat> uh, how many days ago? Uh, no, two weeks ago. No, oh, 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 a week there, ago on Peru. <coughs> a week, a week ago on Peru. The the five, the five, uh, <coughs> the five people who were run over some. days ago. On Peru. Yeah, ten days ago. <coughs> yeah, ten days ago. Um, same old stuff. And here they justify, it, but this is Mrs. Blair years before there's a Jewish state or an occupation or anything to point to or to blame on. And they were doing that, and that's the pattern. And what does she say? They generally don't tell that version of the story. Um, Like most of the world, most of the contemporary society is myopic historically. History didn't happen. Who can think as far back as 1920? It's just, you know whatever's the current spin, that's what it's on anybody's mind. And you see that with the shallowness of the, of the societies today, people have very little historical perspective. That's, of course, what we're trying to correct here. Uh, we should know, we should be aware, this is not something that just, th- th- these, these, this long-term struggle didn't happen overnight. There's been a whole process that's led to it. Um, and we're gonna, I mean, we'll, we'll certainly tell the unfolding story, but uh, you have to have historical perspective. Um, and to remember and appreciate this, that Herbert Samuel, the Jew in charge, did nothing to help the Jews. Uh, the British did nothing to protect them. The Arabs simply um, ran amok, unchecked, no, no and with, without any recriminations. Uh, and this will not be the last time. Um, I want to talk about a figure now. Interesting figure. Uh, I'm going to turn the discussion over towards. Uh, so a lot of important things are going on in, in early British mandates, uh, and he represents a certain phenomenon. It's a fellow interesting figure by the name of Yaakov Yisrael Haan, Jacob Haan, a Dutchman. Nobody heard of him? I, by the dance, the Dutch well, but I don't think they'd be related, he didn't leave descendants. Um, he ha- was definitely a colorful figure. He grew up totally assimilated, he was a, a, a writer in Amsterdam. In, in, in the Netherlands, um, but around 1910, when he was he was uh, not quite 30 years old, he began to discover his roots. He was, in fact, Jewish. Um, he was, the, the reason why he became alerted to his Jewish origins is that further reports were coming from the East. You remember how, how uh, persecuted the Russian Jews uh, were throughout this whole period and um, he was bothered by this. What are we going to do about our Jewish family over in the East? Um, he, as a journalist, tried to cover it, tried to raise the issue and make it uh, lead a crusade with limited limited success. Um, in 1917, when the Balfour Declaration came out, he, like so many other Jews, was deeply inspired. He thought, really there may be a solution for the Jewish problem maybe we can't have a semi-autonomous or autonomous state in Palestine and um, very idealistically in 1919 two years later he made Aliyah which you hear the story and you think oh yeah right because I know idealistic Jews who make Aliyah but you know I don't know when I made Aliyah we sent over a lift that included a Maytag, Maytag washer and dryer meaning Okay, it's true, it was not easy making Aliyah, and remains not easy, it's definitely a struggle, but come on, what we have to do today to make Aliyah is nothing compared to somebody like this. He uprooted himself from his life, from his home, came to the wild Middle East uh, with, with, with all the tensions, 1919, and became an ardent Zionist. As we said yesterday, we said throughout, this land, and we said this in the, in the story of, of Montefiore's life, this land has a tendency to inspire Jews to bring them back to their, their origins, and <clears throat> he first started with secular political Zionism, but in rediscovering his roots, he started to learn a little bit more about Tyra, and then he became affiliated with the Mizrahi. And he's one of these figures, very smart, uh, among his many qualities, a lot of diverse qualities, but he's very smart, and um, he chapped, and he was able to integrate, and he had a leadership ability that made him an asset to any group he was associated with, and... Um, He became more religious in a short time. And then he met Rav Yosef Chaim Sonnenfeld, who we've met as well, the founder of the Uli Yisrael and uh, the, the staunch defender of the Torah, the Torah community. Uh, we would call him Haredi today. The term was not relevant then. It was, it's an anachronism, but he was the, he was the uh, figurehead of the Yeshuvah Yeshan, the old guard. Um, and as he became closer to Rav Yosef Chaim Sonnenfeld, he said they learned the Chavrusa. Uh, he became affiliated with other great Jews, Dr. Moshe Valik, the Tzedek Haskell, and others. And um, he became, in the early twenties, the official spokesman for the Agudat Yisrael in Jerusalem. And he had he had many he brought many advantages because he was worldly and sophisticated. He had his, he had his journalist background, so he could speak the language of international diplomacy. But his um, sympathies and his alliance alliances allegiances, allegiances were entirely with Hashem and with Torah and with the Gedolim. So he became the spokesman of Goudis Israel, and when Rav Yosef Chaim Sonnenfeld went over to, what's today Jordan, then it was trans-Jordan, when he went over there to meet with the Hashemite leader Hussein bin Ali, so Yaakov Yosef Tahan also went over and and met with with him. The idea, of course, was to forge an alliance between the Torah world and the Arab world, um, against the common enemy of the secular Zionists. That was the idea. Today you hear of such things and you associate it with um, the Notori Carta. Um, but back in the day, it was not necessarily a fringe Notori Karta thing to do where Joseph Heinz Allenfeld had this idea because he saw the secular Zionism as, as Zionists as the potential um, root of destruction of the Torah world. And they went over to meet with them. And um, they came back. And you can imagine these were extremely controversial uh, decisions to go and meet with them and the Yeshuv, the secular establishment which is now quite developed by the nineteen twenties um... was was antagonized by the fact that they met with the uh, with the enemy and um... <clears throat> anybody been? Can you pick can you, can, you, can you walk down jaffa street ever near the bus station the, it's today it's a broadcasting um... headquarters but it was the old shari tzedek hospital right across the street from the and um, that was the old Shari Tzadik that had a big Tzadik as, as, as the founder, Dr. Moshe Valach, who was himself a very inspiring figure. And um, Yaakov Yosef Dahan was just outside on the way to, um, to Godav and Myriv in Dr. Valach's hospital shul. And it was June 30th, 1924. He was gunned down, he was assassinated right outside the hospital. And we now know this, it was all a mystery at the time. It was the first political assassination of one Jew by another Jew in the modern era. Um, And we now know, too, that the man who ordered the hit, we know who killed him, it was a a sub-person. The man who ordered the hit, I have a picture of him, folks. Look at here. He's on your $100 bills. One man's icon, and it's another man's assassin. Um, his name is Yitzchak Ben Zvi, one of the Rishaim uh, that's uh, celebrated on your hundred-dollar, hundred-shekel note, and um, we know, know, I mean, 100 percent that uh, he was he ordered the hit um, of Yaakov Yosef, ya- Yaakov Yisrael Dahan. Um, others would follow between different camps, and the development of a Jewish state would be a messy, often ugly business. Um, and we're going to tell, tell the messy underbelly side that you generally don't hear about in, um, in history. Um, <clears throat> this new movement actually was very clever and very, very um, disciplined and, and, and very thought through. And they, by this point, recognized that if the Jews in the Torah world maintain their tradition, that would be, um, in, from their perspective, a stumbling block to having long-term Jewish statehood. And um, they understood that one of their most potent tools to deconstruct the Torah world then, as much as today, uh, on election day, we're talking about such things, was in the name of progress to take over the school system. We saw this already, it's not the first iteration, we talked about this when we visited Masquerat Batya 1920s they have it developed into an institution um, how to get the religious people those backwards archaic people to send their children to our advanced schools and we'll get, we'll get the next generation in the name of progress um, a few months after the Balfour Declaration Chaim Weitzman comes to Eretz Israel and he's leading what he calls now the Vad Hatsiirim the committee of the youth he's raised for the time, a considerable sum of money from mostly British, American, and French sources. And um, on what was called the Hatzalos Hamostos ca- um, fundraising campaign. We're gonna save the institutions. Why did they save the institutions? Because if you remember, World War I almost knocked out the, the uh, Jewish establishment in Eretz Yisrael. People were starving to death. The schools were mostly out of commission. There was no, um, there was no way to pay the teachers. So they're not teachers, they're not schools. That was the situation, and this is yeshivas and seminary. You, you name it. There, there were no seminaries. The hadn't come over to, to, to Palestine quite yet. Um, and comes Chaim Weizman, um, from the secular Zionist, uh, a very widely respected scientist in his in his own field. The Weizman Institute is named for him anyway he'd be the first president of the of the state um he comes over right after world war one with all this money and his his stated mission is i'm going to save the schools from bankruptcy here's money but the money came with strings attached they came to you, shalim and they took advantage of the desperate situation and, this, and many of the schools said, yes, we'll take the aid. They were crafty enough not to force them to compromise everything at first. Meaning initially, the Torah schools continue to teach Torah, but with a few important caveats. First off, the language of instruction historically, if, you, if we were learning in Yeshiva and Talmud Torahs back in the day and a cheder back in the day, we'd be learning certainly in Yiddish. The white said, oh, no, that's going to change now. We have a new language now that's a couple decades into the existence of Klal Yisrael. Uh, They're going to start speaking in the school's ivrit, which we now know. At the time, they didn't quite realize just how, what a potent tool language is. But you get language, you get everything. You get the person. That's your whole cultural identity. We saw something similar. I don't know if all of you were here, but we saw part of the almost immediate assimilation of the Jews in America was because of language. Because they, kids, are always very good. They have a good ear for language. They have a, uh, an innate desire and need to blend in, to be accepted. And so they'll master the language and all the idiom and all the all the slang. And meanwhile, the parents the grandparents who were representing voices of tradition, they all spoke with an embarrassing Yiddish accent. And they were backwards. But the Americans spoke with the clear, transatlantic accent, all very, uh, all very um, promising for their future. And was one of, the, one of the major reasons that uh, the assimilation would, 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 would hit the Jewish world so hard and so rapidly and so effectively. Now, across, across the world, in Palestine, the secular Zionists are self-consciously using this tool, this weapon, really against the religious establishment. And they start ivrit be ivrit. And then, very gradually, many changes would follow. In addition to Torah learning, they would introduce biblical criticism into the, into the curriculum. Um, there would be increasing amounts of secular studies, the same reason that you remember the of Volosian closed the doors of the great yeshiva in 1892, because he knew that if you introduce these things, the kids are going to go off the derech So here, People were helpless. The administrators, the teachers, couldn't do anything because the source of the funds uh, were indeed calling, calling the shots. Um, what meant, what that meant was you had to, to appreciate the irony and the tragedy. The um, religious families would send their kids to yeshiva, uh, expecting them to come home with the Jewish education, and by enrolling them into these uh, into these schools they effectively sent their own children off the derech. If you want to understand what's going on today, and when I say today, I literally mean today, in the Knesset elections right now, um, the latest iteration of this was the party that they call Yesh Atid under Yer y- y- Lapid, part of the, many, the, the multi-pronged attack in the Torah world, including a change in the curriculum in Torah institutions. Which by the 1950s had gotten totally independent because of this. Because they recognize they have to be independent, otherwise they'll try to get our youth. It's if this sounds does any does anybody get a feeling this sort of sounds like a conspiracy theory? They're going after our kids. They're gonna get our kids. Right? You know, that, that kind of like alarmist hysterical talk? It does. But it was. It, it really that's they really were going after the kids cynically. I mean, maybe not cynically. Let me, let me, let me step across the aisle and now picture Chaim Weizmann's motivations. He would have probably told you that he was idealistic for doing this. From his perspective as a masculine, as a secular, enlightened Jew, he really felt those poor kids were deprived in the religious, because of their religious upbringing, of a proper education and therefore a proper chance to make it in society. So he would have claimed that all of this was done for altruistic reasons. I and mean, clearly in the Torah world, they didn't, they didn't, they didn't hear the, uh, the altruism. But, you know, it wasn't it, today, um, when was it? It was a few years ago when Zahava the the leader of the Merits, the, right-wing, the very left-wing um, Merits Party, um, proposed, it didn't come through, but she proposed that just like new immigrants to encourage them to come to make aliyah to Israel are often what's called a sal, a basket of um, financial incentives to make it easier to make aliyah and make it more attractive, she said we, we should offer the same package to religious kids who are trying to secularize. We should give them encouragement to secularize. And I, I believe also that it's not cynical from her perspective. She really thinks she's doing a kind, generous thing by helping these poor backward kid, backwards kids out of their low social economic uh, position in the world. I'm trying to look at them in their best light. Um, and, and, and indeed, they were extremely effective. Um, they didn't, they, I mean, the schools was the most infamous, you know, by the time the Chazonish is going to arrive in 1932, the situation was devastating. Religious families had been deconstructed, were destroyed. The, the next generation were, I mean, there were very few yeshivas. Uh, we'll, see, we'll see what the situation is, and the revolution that's going to take place under the Chazonish, under the Panovich Rav, and, and others, um, is, is quite dramatic. The um, the secular also established another number of other institutions. They they have what's called the Vad <laughs> HaIr the the official city council for the Jews of Jerusalem, um, that's accredited with the British mandate. In which they and I mentioned this yesterday, they now have control over religious institutions because that's an imperative. If we, can, if we can contain all of the figureheads of the religious world under our umbrella, we can actually manipulate them and use them for whatever purposes that we want. Chasa showed them that the rabbis should have any autonomy on their own. Um, so now you have the Vad Ha'ir, the which now has uh, control over religious matters like Shechita, they, they stay in the early 1930s, they, they formed their own Hebra Kedisha burial society. Uh, one of my newer tours, I think I might have mentioned this before, that I'm excited about. I don't have too many chances to give it because it's, kind of, it's not for a logical audience. But um, there was an immense conflict over where we. Oh, I mentioned on the bus once. I don't know if anybody picked up on this little tangent. But right across the way, the um, Sanhedria Cemetery um, was actually started by the Zionist Chevro and many of the um, staunch anti-Zionists refused to have their dead buried there. But in 1948, there was no other place to bury them. So as a makeshift place, right down the street here on, Sh- on Shmola Navi Street, um, they found behind a garbage can a little open plot of land and they secretly went to bury their dead there. And in retaliation, some of the Zionists came with guns and shot in the air to scare the mourners, so that they shouldn't do that. It was an immense conflict literally a turf war who's who controls the land um they had and i mentioned this yesterday the chief rabbinate was uh, was founded by the zionists in order to contain the rabbi and to say we have the guggle in our pocket sometimes indeed in the history of the chief rabbinate there would be significant chachamim leaders gdoling themselves but not necessarily and it was something that was determined by election how do you elect the gadol? that was never the jewish way to do things but that's that was that's the way the chief rabbinate worked Um, the campaign was so effective that it really caught the religious establishment which is struggling itself which had no funds and that was not really politically organized nowhere near to the level of the the now very well established Zionist movement and um, their ability to resist was limited and years later they would learn their lesson and form their own independent organization and what you see now you know, the current iteration of the now the the, um, the, the United Torah uh, Political Party has hopefully become a little more sophisticated in trying as best they can to defend Torah and the Torah observant community. Um, we talked about the language. Let's go back. We've never really discussed the development of the modern spoken language. The first school that was the term for it was Ivrit bi Ivrit. You know, learn Hebrew in Hebrew. Um, the idea that you would teach all subjects in a language that doesn't exist I meaning of course it exists but not as a spoken language not as a live living breathing dynamic language other than you know what everybody spoke which was yiddish french ladino one of the other languages the first opened in rishon let in 1886 uh, so there were a lot of different people a- uh, advocates of this new language the person who's credited with founding the new language which is probably too much, giving him too much credit, he was certainly a player, but I don't know if he single-handedly did it, uh, was the fellow that we mentioned before, Eliezer ben Yehuda, who, um, he's technically a Russia by halachic definitions. He edited one of the first Torah newspapers in Palestine. In, he was dur- this was during the first Aliyah in the 1880s and 90s. He came out inciting against rabbis. He spoke, he wrote bitterly against, against the Gedoli Hador. Um, He also was Moser, he um, delivered certain rabbis over to the the Ottoman authorities when he felt that they were too threatening to the uh, Zionist cause. Um, He was the author of the first modern Hebrew dictionary. Um, It's a a relic today, many of the words that he, see, we, we have a language, it's Loshana Kodesh. But you know what it is to take that language and to make it something that people can use practically, realistically. Effectively, you're forced to invent a lot of words. How do you say electricity in Hebrew? How do you say any number of things in Hebrew? And indeed, often for very good reasons, you know, in developing the language, they looked back in classic sources. And like for example, how do you say electricity in Hebrew? Well, I don't know. What would we say? What would be a good example? Well, let's not just let, let's try to avoid anglicized words, even though that would fail, because a lot of a lot of modern Hebrew is anglicized or brought from French or Arabic or other languages. But at the time, they said, well, you know, there is one of the mysterious administering angels who's called Chashmal uh, that uh, figures prominently in the vision of Yeheskel Anavi, and so Chashmal became electricity, something a mysterious coming from the heavens. Um, and many, and, and that's how words uh, entered the Hebrew lexicon. Um, about two thousand words that in, in Ben Yehuda's dictionary never caught on. Meaning, his version of Hebrew is not the version that's spoken in the street today. Uh, but he was a radical for the cause, as we say in Hebrew, davar. He was crazy for the for the issue. Um, his own children, growing up, when everybody, all the other kids down the block were speaking Yiddish, uh, were not allowed to speak any other language. Can you imagine being raised like that? Language is how people connect. Kids deeply need to connect, they need peer acceptance. Their kids can only speak this new Ivrit language that nobody else, that made them ostracized. Um, once he, uh, he caught his wife singing a Yiddish nursery rhyme to the kids, and he, he um, yeah, he wasn't kind to her. And the, uh, the only person who could talk, to the, the kid I heard, the only, he only could speak to his mouth. Was? He could speak to oh, is the mouse I do not I heard that part. The child was only able to speak to because, the mouse because that was the only one who could relate to his uh, woes? Well, no, because uh, uh, Ben, uh, ben Yehuda was afraid that, his, uh, that anybody who would speak to the son yeah. would put in Yiddish. I and see. So he, he was so afraid that... He isolated his child. He isolated his child, so the child had to speak uh, Hebrew to his mouse. Yeah. So. The irony of this new language in addition to being a tool and a weapon of deconstruction of Torah, it took the sublime, transcendent Lashon HaKodesh and often made it utterly banal, utterly mundane. So you can illustrate with the exact word I gave you before, Hashmah, which is one of the ideas the Ramam talks about in somewhere in the first four chapters of the third section of the Morgon, if memory serves correctly, as being one of the uh, angelic forces in the world that the human mind cannot possibly fathom, and yet today it's all too familiar electricity. Did you pay your chashmal bill, what the process is called bathos, it was pathetic, you take something transcendent and you render it in totally ordinary, mundane terms, thereby sucking any kedusha out of the language. It's the reason why you've heard me say this frequently that, you know, Ivrit, the modern spoken Hebrew, is a cousin of Lashon HaKodesh, but don't confuse the two as, as being the same thing. Uh, the aphod. What's the aphod? We just had it in Parsha last week, right? It's what held the and Mishpat. It was, it was the garment of the, Chosh, of the Kohen Gadol that hold, held it Choshin Mishpat. In modern Hebrew, aphod, an apron. I' like that, and on and on and on a whole list of, of exalted terms that in the, in the hands of people leading secular lives became totally secularized and thereby um, a, a terrible reduction of the of the, of, 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 of the sublime um, once we get to the time of the British mandate after World War one, spoken Hebrew spread rapidly it was it, it, Part of the, I mean, it's a miracle, there's no precedent for a language being revived and then suddenly converted in a very short time to being something spoken. But part of the reason that worked was that so many Jews who came in the first, second, third Aliyah were already in transition. When you're in transition, you tend to be more receptive, more open to, to the new, so I'm coming, I'm throwing off the shackles of my old world. Oh, there's a new spoken language. Well, part of the process of making aliyah, being an ole chadash, a new immigrant, was indeed learning the new language. And so since, since the aliyahs were often youth, often young people who have a greater capacity with languages uh, than we old folks, then um, that, that, that's one of the reasons why it took off so quickly and so effectively. Um, but it wasn't just the secular the now increasingly nationalistic religious Jewish community, the Mizrahi world, also would embrace, embrace the new language, but they, of course, brought with it a religious um, verve. They were now excited, look, we're reviving the you know, Lashon Kodish and they, they brought an idealism to the project. Um, to many people's minds, they were now the new Yehoshus coming back into the land as Yoshua bin Nun and conquering from the, uh, from, from the settlers. Uh, there was something of a, of, a, of, a, of a dramatic feel to it, a, rom- a romantic feel of coming back and reclaiming the, the, the soil, of, of tilling and harvesting the soil and speaking this, 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 this language. There would be an entire culture that would grow up around this, replete with um, a new genre of music and what they call riku deyam, a new a new uh, uh, t- a traditional set of dances it would either, either be theater there would be it would be a whole mystique that would develop out of this i mean maybe most stereotypically you picture jews dancing in the hara often drawing from different communities of jews around the world a yemenite right and a yemenite left you know those dance you know those dance steps i, I went to my secular socialist zionist camp so we we grew up on, on and it's, it's this move I can't do this on the recording but it looks something like this where you alternate you alternate uh your, your feet a grapevine correct it's a great it's a yemenite left yemenite right but picture this it was captivating and indeed it captured the imaginations of a generation <clears throat> the british in turn um makes ivrit the third official language after English, and then Arabic next, and you can still see old British mandate signs. Let's say if you walk around the old city, take a look at the walls of the city, you'll see some of the old over the British mandate period, and you, in the, uh, it looks very British too. English, Arabic, and then Ivrit um, are, are the three languages that you have in order of their, their, their order of importance. Um, it was for this reason, this period is often referred to as the Milhama Hasafot, the War of the Languages, because what was at stake was not just the language, it was, as would often be called, if you heard the term, Yiddishkeit. Yiddishkeit was from Kite, was Torah. Because if you spoke the language and Yiddish became associated with the old world of, 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 um, of Torah and the new Ivrit, ironically, even though, you know, you think, well, that's backwards. Isn't the Ivrit the original Lashon HaKodesh that we should be speaking? Isn't that more religious than Yiddish? Well, No for all the reasons I've been arguing, because it was a distorted language. It was not done with the right spirit by the right people. And therefore, and it was a tool used against the Torah establishment. So Yiddish actually became the symbol of the old world and the the, uh, struggle to keep uh, Torah and to to sustain Torah to the next generation. Um, That would be the centerpiece of the struggle to not speak the new language. And it was resisted, let's say, I mean, today, the Hasidic world, or much of the Hasidic world, to some degree, has, has with some exceptions, successfully maintained Yiddishkeit, and they speak Yiddish. That's the lingua franca. Although even the Hasidic world is, is impacted, Hebrew creeps in. It's in the streets. The kids pick up, pick it up. It's in the radio announcements, and it's, it's in the newspapers, and so on. Very hard not to have it. But in the Litvish world, which was never quite as isolationist as the, as the Hasidic world, um, they lost the battle. Of Yiddishkeit and by the 1980s already Rav Shach said this is not a battle that we're going to win and we have to pick our fights and this one is an uphill one and so um, today mostly the litvish yeshivish communities in Israel predominantly speak um, Hebrew although Certainly, there's 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 a nostalgia, a longing for the Yiddish in in cheder's, in seminaries. Many of the rabbis, the teachers, will try to speak Yiddish the get get used to Yiddish. Um, some of the schools actually have instruction in Yiddish, and, uh, there's still there's still a struggle on, on this point. But of course, it's not just about the language; it's about the greater um, it's the greater greater issue at hand. Um, yeah, the quote from Rav Shach is he says, "This fight we can't win." In 1924. Changing gears a bit. The great yeshiva's Knessis Beis Yisrael, one of two located, we said yesterday, in the tiny village, together with Rav Baruch Berleibovitz's great Knessis Beis Yitzchak Yeshiva, Knessis Beis Yisrael was located in Slobodka. Slobodka. This was the Musr Yeshiva named for Rabbi Yisrael And the yeshiva made Aliyah. And it comes to Hebron from Slobodka, it's headed by the great, the altar of Slobodka, the great Rav Nosan Svi Finkel, who's the great grandfather of his namesake, who just passed away recently, the, the, the Rosh Yeshiva of the Mir. Uh, it was headed by Rav Moshe Mordechai Epstein um, as well, and other other icons of the Torah world. It's interesting. He, uh, the, the Yeshiva of Chevron today there is a great legacy, Chevron being one of the oldest uh, continuous Yeshivas in the world that descends from this Yeshiva. It's called Chevron eventually, uh, for what is, what's about to happen. Um, the yeshiva in Hebron, um, they were different. If you see old pictures, if you go to the museum in the Beit Hadassah in Hebron, oh, you're not going there because I'm not allowed to take you. If we were to be going next week to the, uh, to the, yeshiva, to the place in Hebron, you would see the, the official yearbook picture of the Hebron Yeshiva, and it's not your picture of one of the starkest yeshivas in the world. It doesn't look typically Haredi, okay. clean-shaven brown suits. It was an import, yeah. That was everybody that was on when we were in Europe. That was everybody. A lot of people, not everybody. In Palestine it was not. It was not the way in Palestine was much more conservative, much less progressive. But you're right in Europe and, and in America, forget it. I, I saw a picture, an old an old picture of the Gudis Israel. The Gudis Israel. I'm talking about the official body of the Haredi Jewish community, the Gudis Israel its annual meeting and the in the early thirties in Cleveland, Ohio. And I, I, it's shocking, you can't believe it's, um, it's a big ballroom kind of a scene where men and women are sitting interspersed, totally mixed, men and women together. And the women are, I don't remember what the proportion is, but overwhelmingly dressed like fruit soaps. Low cleavage, uh, just shocking. They talk about assimilated dress, dress styles. Um, the world has definitely come back from that. The goodness of today is, Baruch Hashem, is quite different than what it was back then. So, but, okay, back to Hebron. You, brought, you, you got me started. The, uh, back to Hebron. So they were different. They didn't quite fit the image of the Yishalmi, the old world, Yeshuvah Yeshan. And so they moved to Hebron. Hebron, the second holiest place to the Jewish people. And... Um, <coughs> By 1929, there were 200 students in Yeshiva's Knesset Space Yisrael, which made it the largest yeshiva in Eretz Yisrael at the time. Um, I'm connecting various threads of history, because all these different threads that we've been weaving together all overlap. We had a unit of, uh, a little while ago about the Kosel Maravi and the struggle for the Jews to be able to just go there and dab in there. So picking up that thread, um, when the British started their term, uh, the mandate, um now it's up to now it's Chaim Weizmann who offers a huge sum of money so that Jews have rights at the coast cell. he's not doing it for religious reasons, he's more nationalist in his motivation, but okay. The Jews would like a respectable little place to be able to pray for a change for the first time in, in hundreds of years. Um, the issue was never resolved, it didn't quite work out, negotiation in this particular case broke down, the Muslims now were opposing it um, violently. Vociferously, they, they would not hear of any compromise. They wanted no, no claim to, uh, the, the Jews should have no claim to their co um, It was an ongoing issue throughout the 1920s. By 1928, the Jews had secured a few basic rights. They were allowed to daven there. They were not allowed to have candles, no mechitzas, no benches or stools, uh, nor were they allowed to build a shofar. And the British, trying to maintain the peace, which meant basically... See, what was maintaining the peace? The Arab world threatened them that if they, if they didn't cower to their demands, they would lead attacks against the Jews. So that's how the British maintained peace. It was the equivalent, somebody once gave, I think, a very apt analogy. A mugger comes to somebody and says, points a gun to their head and says, land for peace, or alternately, money for peace. Give me your money and I'll give you peace. That's the negotiation. That's the even-handed negotiation. So that was the, that was the way it was. In order to stave off the Arab attacks, the British restricted, um, had laws restricting the Jews. And that way they could maintain the peace. Uh, British posed full time guards at the coast cell to maintain. And I showed you a picture last week of such a guard um, right by the coast cell to make sure, make sure the Jews did not break the law and to have organized davening or mechitzes or, or, or any, any such things. Are you going to say something, on The what? People who mug. Yeah. People they look at it as a business deal. So if you give them the money, they'll be, like, oh, yeah, be But today. the but the comparison here is with um, the Arab world threatening violence in exchange for whatever demands they make. Very effective. It works well. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. It makes sense. By the way, for the record, I, I must sound like a terrible right winger on this on this in this class. I actually'm not particularly right wing. I just hear certain arguments make sense to me, but I don't. My, my sympathies are not, uh, you know, are not, are not, are not necessarily the right wing. As, as you'll hear, I, I'll you'll you'll hear my own voice coming through. Uh, I I believe the Torah is going to move the world, not 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 the right wing nor the left nor the left wing. Um, <clears throat> Jews, of course, being a tenacious bunch, we got around the restrictions, but it was difficult. In one episode, in September twenty eighth, nineteen twenty eight, it was Yom Kippur. Uh, the Jews snuck in a mechitza for the occasion the British police resorted to force to remove the mechitza, they broke the mechitza women tried to stop them so the police, the British in response, took pieces of the slats of wood that they dismantled and used it to beat used it as clubs to beat up the women who were davening Yom Kippur uh, there were events chairs were pulled out from under, from under uh, elderly worshippers Seats, they're not allowed to sit down by the coast cell. This episode actually made the news around the world. But now the Grand Mufti, who we met earlier, Hajj Amin al Husseini, he responds, and he's an effective um, campaigner. He stirs up Arab protests all across the country. He sends the word that the Jews are planning to um, rise up. Nothing like gets, gets an Arab mob started like such, such a story. Um, the Jews are going to take possession of the Al-Aqsa Mosque. And the Arabs believe it. Now the Arabs, you can understand from their mentality why they believe it. The whole Zionist movement, the whole large introduction of a Jewish population to their lands looked strange and threatening. And the idea that they would come and threaten their own holy sites, even whether it was true or not, was something that they readily believed. Um, it's interesting. It's from this point in history, it's the first time in history that the Muslims claim that the Kosell itself is a Muslim religious site. Never before was there ever such a precedent, but when it was convenient, it suddenly became a religious site for the Muslims. Um, the Grand Mufti receives permission from the British to convert a nearby building into a mosque right over the Kosell. He adds a minaret. He also adds a muezzin, who's the guy who screams at the top of his lungs and uses loudspeakers nowadays to call them to prayer so that anytime the Jews would go out and start the daven, they would, you know, they would would go at it, disturbing the the Jewish prayer. Um, His offices were based in so we could monitor exactly what's going on by the coastal. The coastal, in other words, becomes the capexis, the center of the the conflict. what had been a cul-de-sac, a dead end, at one point in the Kosell, the Arabs now opened up and they created a passageway so that they could lead their donkeys and, uh, and other animals through the area where the Jews daven. They would walk through there with the animals, deliberately pause to let their animals do their stuff, knowing that Jews can't daven the presence of excrement. As another, as another uh, stumbling block, um, they would play loud music while the Jews were trying to daven and all kinds of other, other, other kinds of um, willful opposition. On August 14th, 1929, the Jews were davening at the Kotel, and they were um, attacked savagely. Um, the next day, there was a strong protest in Tel Aviv against the attack. And the next day, which is Tisha B'Av, in retaliation, 300 secular Zionist youth come to the Coastal. They raise a Zionist flag, uh, which is not quite the flag as we have it today. Um, and they sang Hatikvah, nice and loud and defiantly. And you want to get the Arabs going, that'll do it. Zionist youth singing Hatikva, nothing like that. And the Arabs took notes. Two days later, Friday, August 16th, an organized mob of 2,000 Muslims descended on the Kosa. Uh They burned Sidurim, they burned the other clay kodesh, anything they could find. The Gabaim barely got away with their lives. And it's these attacks that start to spread, they go viral around the country, going into what's now called historically Tarpat, which was the Hebrew uh, year, 1929, um, the Tarpat riots that go on for days around the country. In total, all around the country, there are 167 Jewish murders. So these are by far the most significant, uh, largest attacks to date, certainly overshadowing the 1920, 1921 attacks. And more than any other place in the country, this is the last part for today. uh, The Jews, where they thought they were the safest in Eretz Israel, down in Hebron, suffered the worst. Um, It was unexpected and unprecedented. The Jews and the Arabs living in Hebron for centuries, one of the oldest Jewish community communities in all of Eretz Israel, had relatively harmonious relations. Uh, Jewish families talk about. buying from the Arab neighbors on the day after Pesach uh, and many, many other stories of harmony, uh, that living side by side. But um, on August 23rd, two years after the altar of Slobodka had died, uh, remember Slobodka now is in Hebron. That's, that's one of the major, together with the old community, you have this yeshiva of young, young men, 200 young men studying. Um, Arabs again are rioting all over the country. Uh, A Masmid was learning, it was Benus Manning, was the summertime, what a masmi! he's learning the base medrash on Arab Shabbos, that's really a masmi. very, very, uh, harder to find Jews in the base medrash on Arab Shabbos, but the name of Shmuel Rosenholz, um, was stabbed in cold blood by the mob, he was the first victim of the attacks in Hebron, that lasted um, throughout Arab Shabbos and Leil Shabbos, um, Hebron's Jewish homes and shuls were destroyed, Sifri Toro were burned, there was a pause, the British, all they did was to tell the Jews to stay in their homes. Um, by staying in their homes, that's where most of the massacres occurred. The Arabs broke into many of the homes and, and murdered. The Jewish population in Hebron was mostly elderly, certainly with no military skills, totally defenseless, and the British did nothing to defend them. It was a massacre in every sense of the term. Um, also in Swas, in Motza, in, in Tel Aviv, in New um, 67 casualties uh, in in Hebron. Uh, I, I miss said the number. 67 out of 180 Jews were murdered. Um, there were 24 Hebron students who were murdered. I refer you <coughs> to a startling chapter in All for the Boss of how um, the author's elder brother had been in Hebron and uh, what happened with him during this during this uh, terrible tragedy. Um, eventually, the British would evacuate the Jews of Hebron. Uh, for the first time in centuries, as the British said, for their own protection. Uh, they were not interested in our protection when we were being murdered, but to evacuate, that, that much they did do. Um, and uh, that was until uh, after the Six-Day War, when Jews would return to Hebron, another chapter, another story. Um, in April of 1930, Rav Yosef Chaim Sonnenfeld, I told this story on Erev Shabbos, uh, came to the coastal by now, he's a very elderly, frail man. Uh, it was hard for him to stand, and he was given a small stool to rest for a moment. As he, as he tried to sit down, the Arab officer pulled the chair out from under him, uh, and he collapsed on his spine bone. Um, Jews would build a shofar in Yom Kippur during the 1930s and be arrested for it. Uh, they would sometimes stay in prison for three to six months. Um, they'd often be visited by a great tzaddik that we're going to meet by the name of Aryeh Levine, ish uh, tzaddik haya, tzaddik in our time. And uh, all of this will will develop tomorrow, really picking up right where we left off, um, we're going to talk about the whole concept of a Jewish military. I don't know if you've been persuaded right now, but certainly you can understand now as this frail, vulnerable uh, population now increases in Palestine, in Eretz Yisrael, the need for some kind of self-defense is felt acutely around the country, and we'll talk about that.